Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is week four or five, depending on how you're counting on um, in Gravity series on death and dying. It's um, proved to be um, somewhat popular. Um, uh, physiologically, maybe you could say that, um, that it's the space uh, that comes at the end of the exhale. There's a pause. That's where you're neither inhaling or exhaling. Um, in a yoga practice, um, if you turn that space into a pose, um, maybe you'd call that pose um, Shavasana, uh, the practice of dying. And over the last few weeks, we've been taking that pose, the practice of dying, and looking at it in um, different kinds of settings, hospital settings, for instance, or, um, uh, or writing poems on your birthday about death. In fact, all those cranes that you see floating up in the window are filled with um, secret death poems. Um, one day they'll be read out loud, I'm sure. Um, so... Um, a few words of introduction uh, for Lauren um, Corman, uh, my friend. Uh, we met uh, through a mutual friend. His name was Mark Karbusiski, and Mark um, lit up this world of animals for me. Um, he told me that um, we were living in this city that was um, so close to the water where the water was really um, running out through all the streets but was covered over. It was a city of um, shadows and deep ravines. Um, and that through those ravines and parks was really teeming with an animal life, um, largely unseen. And that the other part of the city, the visible part, the restaurants and clothing stores, were also um, filled with animals of a very different kind. Um, and um, it was a, he really changed the way that I lived in this city. Um, and then one day this extremely um, capable and beautiful, extremely young guy um, uh, died. Uh, very suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, and in that moment, um, there were a few of us who were reaching out um, for each other um, to find out um, who are we now after this thing that happened. Um, and that's when I met Lauren. Uh, the first time we met was in a radio station, actually, at CIUT. Um, she was behind a microphone, um, just finishing up another episode of Animal Voices, the longest-running um, uh, radio station dedicated to... Um, uh, to animals. Um, she worked, uh, she, read, she helmed up that um, uh, and co-hosted that show for 10 years, and she's now a um, Canada's only dedicated full-time animal studies prof. Um, maybe I'll just say one more thing, one more quick thing. Um, one of the great um, pleasures that I have um, whenever I speak with Lauren is that I can somehow hear um, all those years of, uh, of being in that radio program and listening to all these different, this tremendous multiplicity of voices of people speaking about animals in such different ways, um, somehow she carries this listening in her, um, in her speaking. Um, yeah, her speaking is a kind of listening already. So, fine. Um, and I'm so looking forward to what you're going to... Tell us today. Thanks. I realized I need to grab a couple more books. Books? <laughs> I'm grab a couple more books. Okay. Right
this is such a great experience and such an honor to be here. Uh, when I lecture um, at Brock, one of the first things that I do is we do some kind of exercise around paying attention. And it was so neat to think that we wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> like, I'm always like, no Facebook, and please put that away. Um, and, you know, and uh, I'll play a video about listening or something and, and try to get people to hold space in a particular way to encourage them. And that's just so nice to just be here um, without having to do that primer. <laughs> so... Um, I'm just going to say a couple of little things before I um, launch into it. Thank you to Michael. Um, thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I've been hanging out with, uh, with a friend of mine in St. Catharines, and we've been eating a lot of strawberries lately. And it reminds me, it keeps reminding me of the story that my friend Jane goes back to, and I'm sure I'm going to pulverize in the telling, but you probably know the story about um, the monk who's being chased by, by tigers and then ends up basically jumping off a cliff, hanging on a vine, and, the, and um, seeing tigers below him as well. <laughs> Pace, this is not a good situation. Pacing below him, above him, there's tigers, and then right in front of him there's this strawberry. Um, and and he, <laughs> he's looking at strawberries. He needs to eat the strawberry, of course. And that as he's noticing the strawberry, too, there's this mouse who's two mice, actually, who are chewing the vine. <laughs> it's like, you're going to eat that strawberry. So um, Jane loves the story about, you know, the strawberry, being with the strawberry. Tigers above you, tigers below you. And my friend Wade and I have been hanging out. I, I wrote to him the other day, and I said, I really enjoy hanging out with you because... I feel like you can really taste the strawberries. So I feel like this group can really taste the strawberries, and that is so awesome. Um, okay. So um, I don't know to the extent that people know about animal issues in this group. Um, some of it might be redundant. Some of it um, you might have heard before. But I just sort of assumed that people didn't know, um, although with a group like this, I'm sure uh, consciousness around certain issues that are more marginalized are perhaps a little bit more to the surface here. So I apologize if it's um, <coughs> redundant. Uh, I thought I would start just to frame things uh, a little bit with one of my favorite authors, and I know you know Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, this is the book that I buy for everybody who says, so you do that meditation stuff. Um, and I introduced them to the miracle of mindfulness, and I thought, given what you've been looking at in terms of death, that it might be interesting to start with uh, one of the meditations he recommends, which is the meditation on the corpse. And this, um, this and another quote will hopefully just act as a kind of frame for the rest of the things that I'll be talking about today. Can everyone hear me okay? You can hear me okay? Okay. The Buddha, the Buddha Sutra on mindfulness speaks about the meditation on the corpse. Meditate on the decomposition of the body, how the body bloats and turns violet, how it is eaten by worms until only bits of blood and flesh still cling to the bones. Meditate up to the point where only the white bones remain, which in turn are slowly worn away and turned into dust. Meditate like that, knowing that your own body will undergo the same process. Meditate on the corpse until you are calm and at peace, until your mind and heart are light and tranquil, and a smile appears on your face. Thus, by overcoming revulsion and fear, life will be seen as infinitely precious, every second of it worth living. And it is not just our own lives that are recognized as precious, but the lives of every other person every other person, every other being, every other reality. We can no longer be deluded by the notion that the destruction of others' lives is necessary for our own survival.
And then the other framing quote is Pema Chodron's quote from Start with Start Where You Are. And she says, So the first point is that we are all completely interrelated. What you do to others, you do to yourself. What you do to yourself, you do to others. If at any point I'm not speaking loudly enough, please just let me know. So, although this isn't a video that I'll be showing, um, some of the material at the first part of this presentation is pretty graphic um, in terms of how animals are treated in industrial settings. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up um, that you'll see animals in crates and confinement. We're not going to stay in that place of um, suffering uh, and pain, uh, but it's an important kind of prelude to the, to the rest of the things that I want to talk about, uh, that inter intermingling of, of death and life. Um, so I'll just start off by saying that I got interested in animal issues when I was at the University of Manitoba, and I was doing my undergraduate uh, degree there in women's studies, and I was really heavily involved in violence against women issues. So I was coordinating the Women's Center at one point, I was doing a lot of um, trying to do a lot of international solidarity work around women's issues, looking at issues of rape, dowry murders, um, foot binding, all sorts of really complex um, issues of, of violence against women. And looking as much as possible to understand how women in various different parts of the world, including Canada, uh, make sense of their lives, um, make sense of the violence in their lives, how do they resist, how are they agents. And it was a really, it was, it was a time of incredible transformation for me. It was really um, a, a, an incredibly hard time, but also a very empowering time. And when I was in the middle of that um, work, I, I started to learn about factory farming and vivisection. So those are sort of the two major big industries that use animals. And their, their use of animals, those two major sites, so animal testing, and research, and then food production, um, a lot of this is very un um, uh, hidden from view. And so when I learned about it, I was totally shocked. <laughs> um, I remember the day that I learned what vivisection was, and it, it blew my mind, and it was, it was really rattling. It was difficult. And so I learned about that in the context of feminist theory, which the way that I was learning about it was this, this premise that all the other theory was built off of, which is... Um, all oppressions are linked. This notion that if you're going to talk about what's happening to women and the oppression of women, you're going to have to be talking about other linked struggles and other issues of oppression. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense. It's all connected. You can't talk about these things uh, in isolation. And I stumbled upon the animal piece, and I just thought, oh, this is this clearly is a form of oppression. This will, you know, be able to be accommodated within feminist theory. And unfortunately, to a large degree, at least at the time, this is in the 1990s, um, mid-1990s, uh, there really wasn't room for talking about uh, animals, which seemed strange. Like, how can you <laughs> how can you talk about oppression? But this, you know, how do we make sense of what's happening to animals then? So I left women's studies reluctantly, although I carry um, what I've learned from that field into the work that I do, and I went on to do environmental studies at York. Uh, university, my master's and my PhD work as well. And I, I really kind of tried to sit with animal issues as much as I, as I could. And um, I'll start there in terms of some of the pictures. Hopefully we get this to work. Okay. So um, I... I was really trying to figure out how did we get here? Here as in um, something as kind of benign as an egg. Um, I had no understanding uh, you know, until I started to look at these issues more closely where most of my food was coming from. And um, one of the things that I had done in women's studies where we had done a kind of unpacking of what's on your plate, but it was all about sort of environmental issues and uh, women's rights and labor issues. Um, a poster, I remember, showed different food, but it was talking about human issues, and the animal piece was just completely erased. So 
um, it's shocking. <laughs> I find I, I still look at these pictures and I'm shocked. So this is this is sort of typical battery cage facility. This is where 98% of our eggs are coming from in Canada. Um, you're talking about tens of millions of birds in Canada that are experiencing these kinds of conditions. Um, these cages are about 16 to 18 inches. Uh, they have about five to six birds in them. They're totally frustrated. They're completely in the dark. The excrement is falling from the tiers above, below. Uh, the ammonia is so terrible, it burns their eyes. Um, these birds are being forced to, um, they actually retain their eggs so long because they're so stressed, but they're forced to produce so many eggs that they often suffer from osteoporosis, so then when they're actually yanked out of their cages about two years in, their bones really easily break, and that's their lives. Um, and this is the kind of stuff I, I just felt like, how could I not know this? Um, this is a Canadian factory farm, battery cage facility. Again, very typical. These aren't sort of the worst of the worst. These are just sort of standard industry practices. Um, these are gestation crates. Pigs in particular are really uh, meaningful for me. Interesting animals. I actually spent some time with, some time with pigs over the weekend. Um, when I was coming into these issues in Manitoba, um, factory farming was really taking hold. Uh, there was a huge hog boom. Uh, the province was struggling financially. They wanted people to have a good business climate, so they basically eroded all the environmental regulations and uh, allowed people to come in and set up these sorts of factory farms. And this is about 15 million pigs that we're killing every year in Canada who are living in conditions like this. They, these crates are about two feet by seven feet. They can't turn around. Um, in terms of intelligence levels, um, pigs will play with balls. They certainly have been shown to be as intelligent. These are all problematic ideas. As dogs, um, these are highly sentient, emotional, social creatures that we're doing this to. And actually, we take the most social creatures and we put them into these conditions because that's how they got domesticated in the first place, is that they're social animals that can do okay being near each other. Um, dairy, you know, a, a, another one of those ones, you think it's a glass of milk. How can it be that bad? And of course, the veal industry is a direct result of um, the dairy industry. And these are veal calves who would have been taken away from their mothers very early, maybe a few days after birth. They were castrated, put into these uh, sheds. And then they're kept um, very tightly confined um, in order to keep their flesh soft um, for veal. And then, of course, you know, even if you're talking about organic, free range, these words are largely meaningless. They're actually not regulated. But regardless, these animals are going to end up at a federally or provincial, a federal or provincially regulated slaughterhouse. And that was something that interested me. So animal issues, again, kind of thinking through the frame of feminist theory, all oppressions are linked. I, was, I thought, okay, there's got to be some way of kind of thinking through the slaughterhouse, perhaps as a site um, of interlocked oppression. So I started, for my master's, interviewing slaughterhouse workers about um, how they understood their jobs, um, the relationship between the welfare of the animals and the welfare of the workers, because they're, they're directly related. So with these animals, um, about 1 in 12 in the U.S. cattle, for example, are skinned alive. Um, that's very, very high. Um, but if you, just in terms of a human kind of impact, labor impact, if you have an animal who, that doesn't have a proper stun, uh, then they're going to be flailing around and potentially hurting a worker. So the workers actually have an investment in making sure that those animals are, are getting a proper stun. But it's so hard because this is a very highly mechanized uh, industrial uh, production um, that requires um, very high, high uh, line speeds. So there's that. Uh, some things that we know about slaughterhouses in Canada, we tend to draw on new immigrants. We tend to draw on migrant labor. We draw on people in rural areas, people that we don't think will... Um, unionize. It's the most disenfranchised groups um, often. And then their bodies are just brutalized. Um, repetitive strain injuries, uh, chronic infections, extremely loud environments. We see high incidences of, of crime rates um, in slaughterhouse communities, um, uh, domestic violence, all sorts of issues, right, compounding in these sites. So the animal movements have been upset about these things for a long time, the animal rights movement. And I think what we've been very good at in the animal rights movement is saying, look at this suffering. This is terrible, right? We're consuming, we're consuming all of this terror. Um, it's all hidden. 
and uh, we don't have to confront it. So the animal movements, to a very large degree, have said, like, look, suffering, you know, violence, this stuff, like, wake up. And um, I think that's gotten us to a point. <laughs> I think it's gotten us to a point. Suko is a really interesting visual artist. She actually tried to tour slaughterhouses in the States and Canada and wasn't allowed to bring her camera in. There's some notion that if we did see it, that people might be disturbed. But she was allowed to bring in her sketchbook. And so a lot of her first images around animals and slaughterhouses and factory farms came out of her sketches that she did. And I think this is one of her more recent pieces, though. But I saw this the other day, and it really struck me. And it's kind of a good representative representation of that kind of um, let's focus on suffering and terror approach that's, I think, really important in the animal movements, but I think is also missing something really important. This became much more clear to me once I started doing the radio show. So I did the radio show for about 10 years. I was still in that, like, we need to talk about everything, that the suffering and the, you know, and it's we need to just tell people about it. You know, if people know about it, they'll change, they'll change. And when I first started doing the radio show, the person at the at CIUT, the station manager, just said, like, the horror show, like, every week you're telling us about something new and awful. And I just felt the sense of desperation, you know, um, like, people need to know about this. So seal hunt, I, I, I would kind of, we would visit this every year, the annual seal hunt. So I did over the course of, I guess maybe it was about six or seven years, I had covered the seal hunt. And it started to dawn on me with the seal hunt. Um, we're doing the same show about the seal hunt, like over and over again. We're talking about these seals being bludgeoned. We're talking about seals being skinned alive on the ice. We're talking about tensions between workers and animal rights activists. We're talking about First Nations issues and all that's important, but we're doing the same show over and over again, over and over again. And, and it's the horror show, and it's the hack-a-pick, and it's this, right? This is the image. So, um, my partner and I at the time, we just thought, well, we need to, we need to do something different. <laughs> we're getting bored of ourselves, and I don't know if this is doing anything. So we started to talk to different activist groups. We were like, could you tell us something about, could we interview you? And we want to talk about all the suffering and the tensions and the conflicts and the human conflicts, but can you tell us about the seals? Like, could you tell us about the seals? And, and they couldn't. People could not tell us about the seals. I was like, you don't, you can't tell us about, like, who the seals are. How do the seals know? Like, when they're not being bludgeoned, right? I, I mean, I'm not making light of this, but it's like, they have other lives outside of this moment, right? This moment. So, they couldn't. So we were just like, well, what do you mean you can't? You know, but of course, that makes sense because you're an activist and you want to get this stuff about suffering into the public. So, um, I should mention that I did try to see the radio show as an opportunity for practice. Like, let's be with this. What's going on here? Um, let's pay attention to what we are doing as well. So what we did is we started a mission, a small mission, to find somebody who could tell us about SEALs. Uh, they didn't have to be an activist, just somebody who had spent some time with SEALs, who would researched SEALs, who could tell us the other part of it. We didn't want to lose the part about this is, this, is, this is something we should talk about, right? But that's not everything that we want to say. So we, we found this person, Fred Broomer, who I adore. This is now the part of the, the talk where I'll just go talk about everybody that I love. <laughs> um, so Fred, Fred Broomer is, I think he's in his 80s now. Um, he took this iconic photo. This became the photo for this um, anti-sealing movement uh, in 1964. This was the shot. Um, it's been reproduced many times. The top 50 um, photographs that have changed the world, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Fred agreed to be on the show. He has a very thick accent. I was thinking, well, maybe I should have played the interview with him, but it's hard to understand him. But he said, I'll be on the show but we're not going to talk politics. We're not going to talk ethics. I'm just going to talk about the seals. Like, Great, do that. You can just do that. So I thought I would just read. I would read from Fred's interview to give you a sense of how I think paying attention and mindfulness um, can enhance uh, the animal movements and how I found that it's enhanced my own work. So the first, the first uh, excerpt is about him talking about uh, birth, and then we talk about smell. And you have to imagine uh, an elderly gentleman's voice. He's from Latvia. <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's so tender. And he says, when a pup is born, it happens extremely fast. 
When a pup is born, it happens extremely fast. You may be watching one seal, and just behind you a female has given birth. There's a very sharp contraction, and then the pup is expelled from the ice, which is, you know, quite a shock for a poor little pup because it's 98 and warm inside, and then suddenly whammo. <laughs> it's covered in amniotic fluid, it's shivering, and it knows that it must, it absolutely knows it must vitally, must feed as quickly as possible. It sort of instinct instinctively knows the food is to be had from the dark shape upon the ice, which is the mother. But the pup does not know where, and these initial moments are sort of pathetically, I don't know, it's a very touching moment, because basically this poor little pup is desperately looking for milk. But where is the milk to be had? It starts all over. It starts at the chin. It suckles here. It suckles there. It doesn't get anything. And finally, it usually takes 10 minutes to find the nipples which are hidden in the grooves of the mother's abdomen. And then all of a sudden, it may have milk, a very rich milk, which is nearly 30% fat. And you can see this sort of blissful, my God, I've made it. <laughs> it's something very touching. I've seen that early moment, moments, moments when they suckle. And I say, you have a few photos that I've seen document that satisfied look of the baby right after the nur they've nursed in the sun. And he says, oh, you know, on a day like today in Montreal, a sunny day, but on the ice, it's cold, it's sunny. There's a wonderful reflection off the ice. I normally very rarely stand. I usually lie with the seals because I'm less alien if I do that. That way, I'm extremely close to the animals, and they sort of accept me after a while. I usually try one female who's not particularly worried about me and then stay with her for a while, for an entire day. And then we talk about smell, and I say, one of the things that strike, struck me about your research is that um, I was just amazed that the mothers could locate their pups in a sea of 100,000 other pups. And I said, I would have assumed that they would identify them through sight. And he says, yes. Um, and I said, but actually, it's, it's smell. He says, yes. Uh, bec because the moment a pup is born, the female turns around and smells. She deeply inhales that scent. Now, don't forget that on the ice, there are tens of thousands of females and pups, and she will dive out for a while and see them go away and come back, and the ice moves on its own. She has to find her pup again. She imprints at that moment the scent of the pup and its voice, and from then on, she can distinguish the scent and the voice among all the thousands of thousands of other pups. That's identification, and that holds true. I spent a lot of time in Namibia and Africa, there are huge colonies. There are 100,000, 200,000 seals packed on one beach, and yet the females, they go to sea to feed, and then they come back, and amongst those 100,000 pups, they find their own. Okay, so that was an important interview. <laughs> it shifted, started to help shift how I was thinking about how we might talk about um, animal issues. Um, and one of the things that I started to do uh, in my own research is um, to think more about the notion of radical openness, um, which is a, is a term that Bell Hooks um, talks about in her work on marginality, specifically the marginality of black women's voices. And this notion of, of radical openness is really about humility, right? Really trying to listen to those who have been silenced, um, paying attention uh, cultivating um, a kind of um, humble willingness to recognize maybe you don't have it all figured out, maybe you got some of it wrong, uh, a willingness to change your view, a willingness to have that impact you. So I started to think I, I've gotten pretty good at maybe listening to suffering and pain and trying to open myself up to suffering and pain, uh, but maybe in that kind of radical openness, I might have a responsibility to move beyond, or maybe to include, but move beyond um, suffering and pain. And uh, as the Fred Broomer interview illustrates, um, that was the sort of narrative I started to seek out in combination with the kinds of things that I was talking about before um, his, uh, before those excerpts. And I ended up doing my PhD actually focused um, on voice. Um, this notion of radical openness really is about paying attention to different voices uh, and letting those voices touch you in some way. And um, I wanted to think about all the work that has been done in that area in feminist theory and critical race theory and other sorts of social justice movements as well. We're very concerned with questions of voice. How do we bring voices in that haven't been heard? How are we silencing others? So I wanted to think about applying that to um, 
a politics uh, for animals as well. So one of the things that I did to kind of explore that further, to think about voice in relationship to animals um, that would do more of what Fred Brumer is talking about, really trying to be with them in the, in the complexity and rich subjectivity of their lives um, that wasn't just about pain and suffering, I started to try to listen to how people talk about voice. And I noticed that there were um, a number of dynamics that people pull out when they talk about voice. Um, the metaphor is extremely rich. It's really powerful in North America and really actually beyond North America as well. Um, so when people talk about voice, um, they're talking about subjectivity. These are things that are always packed into the notion of voice. They're talking about subjectivity, so someone's point of view. It's very important. That's always implied when people are talking about voice. They're talking about a valuing of experiential knowledge. So here's a bunch of marginalized people, for example, who haven't had a voice because their knowledge is, haven't been respected. Um, they're not even seen as knowledges, potentially. Um, voice is interesting as a metaphor, too, that it always implies relationality. So um, uh, as a Western metaphor, I think that's, I think that's kind of unique, um, that it's not about dichotomies. It's actually about um, uh, transmission, reception, um, dialogical exchange. Somebody that I read talked about what is voice without the listener. So there's always a kind of implied relationality, a dialogical quality to voice. Um, and then the, the last dynamic that I saw when we pay attention to what people are talking about when they talk about voice is agency and resistance. So there's this notion, too, that if I have a voice that I can push back or I can change um, my circumstances or that I, I'm an agent in the world, I'm not just a subject. So when people talk about coming to voice, they're often talking about a liberation struggle where they're moving from object to subject, which is interesting because that's certainly what the animal liberation movements have been about, trying to get animals away from the object status into a position of subjectivity or to be recognized as subjects. So all of this made a lot of sense to me. So I started to look at that more closely and um, I started to cultivate interviews with people who I felt that were centralizing animal voices. Again, to talk about suffering, but that they were going to bring in um, a richer version of subjectivity uh, into their discourse. And Sharon Nunez is um, such a hero of mine. She's a really wonderful activist. She founded the group um, Equaldas Animal in Spain. Uh, and I interviewed her, and she talked about a recent open rescue, which is kind of like um, sort of maybe what you would have heard about with the Animal Liberation Front, except the Animal Liberation Fronts, they break into places and they take animals out, and it's all anonymous. And open rescues are when people are showing their faces and they're not trying to hide what they're doing, and they're breaking into facilities, and they're getting animals out. And the idea is that if they're doing that, well, one, they're saying we're not doing anything wrong, and two, they think that the media will be so intense that they won't actually get prosecuted. That ended up backfiring on them, but they had this kind of heyday of open rescues for a while. Uh, and I think it's actually a really provocative strategy. Um, so anyway, this is part of my interview with Sharon Nunez. She here um, talks about the significance of doing um, a recent open rescue with pigs, and she talks about how getting to know these pigs, so again, relationality, uh, deepened her politics and her ethics in the world. And she says, well, I mean, this is something that changed. As I said, something that was a huge change for me, because although you understand animals are persons, and I've lived with cats, I've lived with, I, I take care of a few cats, it's very important for, I think activists and people in general need to get to know individual animals. And while there's not really a common characteristic for these three pigs, they're three different individuals. So she's talking about the ones that survived that they were able to get out of a factory farm in Spain. One of them is very social and likes to be around people and likes to be with other pigs. The other one, Gracie, uh, Gracie isn't, well, one, one's Gracie, Mark and Marion are their names. Mark is very shy. He loves to be around people also. He loves to get pe loves to get people's attention. And Gracie is, well, she isn't very shy. Uh, she's always the first one to go for the food, and she's a bit of, um, she's a bit violent with other pigs because she always wants to get her way and to do what she wants. And getting to know them from time to time, since they were babies uh, to now, I, and I'd say they weigh 200 kilos. They're about a year and a half old. June 2007, I say they're about a year and a half old. And it's something amazing. It's something that changed my life. And I know for real that people after, some friends, after people have met these pigs, have decided to stop eating meat, and some of them have decided to take animal rights activism more seriously. 
And I say, well, we're down to just the last minute, but you were already very passionate about animals before you met these three. You say it changed your life, though. How did it change it more than it was already changed being vegan? And she says, well, you see, I think it's surprising when how a person who's passionate about animals can become even more passionate about animals. I mean, every different individual I meet makes me more passionate about fighting for animals and about the whole idea that animals are individuals. They have their own personalities. It's not something that I can really explain. It's something away from rationality. It's something that I feel. I mean, obviously, we have these arguments on our side. We have, we've won the debate, even if we haven't even if we haven't had a debate sometimes. But I mean, it's very important to feel compassion and love for animals. I think this is one of the most important things for an active activist, because that's what gives you the strength to work on a daily basis, or at least that's what happened to me. And I met some pigs this weekend, and it was true. They were all different. So if you've been following Mark's, or Mark's, if you've been following Mike's um, blogs, uh, and writings. Um, he's talked about Barbara Smuts's work, right? And the baboons. I'm going to talk about Barbara Smuts and the dogs a little bit. So, again, these are just sort of, I just wanted to give you um, kind of a, a little sampling of some of the people that I think are drawing on um, the dynamics of voice and I think highlighting uh, animal voices in their work. And they're moving away from strictly discourses of victim, victimhood and suffering, which I think is really important. Uh, I think, too, we can pay attention to and learn a lot from the feminist movements that have asked us to think about, to think critically about positioning women strictly as victims. So certainly, animals are making sense of their own lives and are agents and are trying to communicate with us in all sorts of ways um, and with each other uh, that I think makes them uh, much more than victims and much more than just suffering beings. So Barbara Smuts is really cool. She's a biopsychologist at the University of Michigan. She's my favorite theorist. Um, she's done a lot of work on embodied communication and um, paying attention to being with animals. And her whole grounds uh, for her work is based on relationality. And uh, this is a picture of her with Bahati and also um, another one of her dogs, uh, Safi. Safi's the black dog. Um, she's done a lot of work with wolves, she's done work with baboons, uh, but the stories I'm going to tell you are about her relationships with her dogs. Um, so the first one, and I remember reading these stories, they were all transform transformative stories for me. Um, and the first story is about Safi, so the black dog. And she was having a pretty good relationship with Safi, she lives with Safi. They have a harmonious relationship. Um, and then one day Safi started growling at her. And it was really uncharacteristic um, to have her interact with her this way. And Smuts mentioned this to a friend who said, oh, well, this is clearly a dominance behavior. This is about territory. And, and, and her friend, who's a trainer, said, you really have to like nip this in the bud. You have to go after her. You need to show her who's boss. And Smuts didn't have a lot of uh, experience working with dogs. And she thought, OK, well, this is the dog trainer. And so the next time she uh, interacted with Safi and Safi growled, um, she did what the trainer advised, which was to roll Safi over quickly um, into the, do the alpha roll and stand over top of her and to intimidate her, to show her where she was in the pack. And there was a moment then when she does this and Safi looks back and the only way that Smuts can describe this is terror. She's afraid. And Smuts lets her go right away and promises herself that she's never going to do this again. Like, whatever that was, that was not okay. And, and it was really a look of betrayal, almost, that Safi was wondering, why would you do this to me? And so Smuts just started to try to pay attention to see Safi as a teacher who was maybe trying to communicate something to her. Uh, and that if she could pay attention to that and really sit with that and listen to it, maybe she could change her behavior in such a way that would improve their relationship. And so she just had to really be with Safi and to, to observe those moments when Safi would growl. And she noticed that quick movements, um, especially from the front, but anything really fast, uh, was, would elicit a, a growl from Safi. So Smuts just started to approach slowly, or when she would enter a room, she would talk uh, to Safi. And um, it changed their relationship profoundly. Uh, and Safi stopped growling. And Smuts 
you know, tried to think about it as Safi was trying to tell her something about um, being uncomfortable. You know, she said it became clear that she had been hurt. Uh, she had probably been kicked. Um, she didn't know Safi's history before she got her, but she could kind of figure out that this is what was going on. Um, I have another great story about, about Smuts' dogs, but um, I'm going to leave that for now. She's got all of her work online. A um, couple more stories. So I wanted to talk to you about the implications of this um, for, we're talking about domesticated animals, but also wild animals. Um, this uh, is a bottlenose dolphin. This is a shark bay. It's, these um, dolphins in Shark Bay, Australia, uh, there's a group of them, mothers and daughters, uh, and it's exclusive just to um, these dolphins in that area, uh, that have learned this technique um, where they carry these sponges on their snouts. And it's really fascinating. Um, and it's really just them that do it. And researchers went and tried to figure out what was going on. And what they, just, what they figured out was that these, these dolphins had had... Um, developed a technique for hunting. So that's just unique to them. They're individual learners. This, I think, has been used as um, evidence that there's culture in non-human animals, which I think is part of this paying attention to individual, individuality of animals and also individual uh, differences between groups of animals. Anyway, so what happens is they put these um, sponges on their snouts, they teach their daughters how to do this, and then they dive down uh, into the ocean and they uh, they push up all the sediment and it kicks up all these bottom feeding fish that they wouldn't usually have access to because the way that they hunt typically is through echolocation where they're bouncing sonar off, um, off their fish bladders that are full of air. But you can't do that with the um, fish that are at the bottom because they don't have fish bladders. So they needed to develop a new technique um, for hunting. So it's a, basically a great way to get a quick meal. Um, and it's just these dolphins that do it. And I think smuts would really agree with this kind of research because it's about trying to appreciate individuality um, and specificity among different groups of animals. It's just not enough to talk about dolphins as dolphins, right? This is a very clear example of specificity, uh, unique uh, attributes, um, and also learned culture between uh, different uh, non-human animals. And I know we don't have time. I'll just quickly wrap up here. Um, I was going to have 40 minutes to talk, right? Is this what you're thinking? Okay, so... Um, so uh, paying attention, specificity of animals, being with animals, listening to their voices, thinking about relationality, thinking about their own subjectivity. Um, this actually has, I think it has really profound implications um, for our own ethical engagements with, in the world. Um, I think that it uh, can deepen our own practice to open up to non-human animal suffering, uh, to open up to non-human animals in our own lives to improve our relationships. But I also think um, that a willingness to be radically open in that way um, has conservation uh, implications as well. So this is, this is um, kind of an added layer to think about. So um, these North American right whales um, have been pretty severely um, hunted, and their populations aren't recovering very quickly. And um, part of the Part of the explanation for that, because conservationists have, conservationists have been confused, is saying, well, there should be enough of these whales now to be able to uh, repopulate now that the whaling has decreased, uh, and we're not seeing population resilience. And one of the explanations is that um, what has been lost with some that have been hunted is, uh, is uh, traditional knowledge. So actually, some of the whales that have been killed are the ones that know where, when um, temperatures are very hot, to go and get food. And they actually communicate that, not genetically, but through other communication strategies, uh, to tell others how to find food in very hot temperatures. So um, these whales are probably lacking some traditional knowledge because some of their key clan, uh, you know, others have been killed. So recognizing um, their subjectivity, their emotional capability, their social lives, and of course culture really being about um, social learning transmitted over generations 
that if we kill animals in the wild, for example, um, and we don't recognize that they have subjectivity and cultural capability, um, we see that it has direct implications for um, whale populations. Uh, they're not doing as well because their traditional knowledge has been lost. And similarly, uh, just as another example, um, sperm whales um, of, of the Eastern Pacific, um, there's one group of those whales that does know, they can see as a kind of comparative model, where to go when temperatures are very hot, um, where the feeding grounds are very good. And then they can teach the other whales how to also find uh, that food. And so this becomes um, incredibly important in the face of climate change and global warming because if you're killing some uh, members of these populations uh, that have traditional knowledge and you're not recognizing animals as anything more than biological machines, you totally fail to recognize why a population like this is not uh, being resilient and coming back. So these, this kind of more peripheral um, uh, area of animal culture and emotions uh, actually has direct implications for a very mainstream topic in some ways about uh, population or about uh, global warming and conservation. So I just sort of wanted to add that as like another thing to think about. Um, sort of the there's a personal uh, political and ethical commitment that I that I hope people can take away from or think about with this, but it also has a sort of larger environmental consequence as well that I think is something that we should consider. And there's just so many other great people I want to talk about, but I don't have time. But David Rothenberg, I would suggest, please go check him out. Um, he's a philosopher and a really fabulous musician, and he plays music with birds, and they play back. And he's done some of this with whales as well. Um, he wrote a, bird, a book called Why Birds Sing. He, um, he has a book called Thousand Mile, Mile Song, uh, Whale Music in a Sea of Sound. Um, a very cool book uh, that I would suggest people checking out as well is Fear of the Animal Planet, The Hidden Resistance of Animal, The Hidden History of Animal Resistance. And it's all about like zoo breaks and uh, chimpanzees getting out of labs and all the creative ways that they pick locks and uh, ground wires so they can get across moats. Like there's all, you, would they work together? Um, res animal resistance and agency, I think, is something really important to think about. And this is a new book and it's fabulous. And I'll end there, um, I think. Oh, I did want to end just with one short quote. Okay, so probably my favorite Pema Chodron quote ever. Um, and it's about, it's something that changed my own life and my relationship to animals. Um, and I just thought I would stop with that. Uh, she says, if we begin to surrender ourselves, begin to drop, drop the storyline and experience what all this messy stuff behind the storyline feels like, we begin to find bodhicitta, the tenderness that's underneath all that harshness. By being kind to ourselves, we become kind to others. By being kind to others, if it's done properly, with proper understanding, we benefit as well. So I'll leave it there. I hope that we can drop our storylines often about animals. I feel like they're often very limited, um, or at least they had been in my own life, and open to a more radical understanding, a more open understanding about who they can be and also um, how we might interact with them more positively and uh, let them change who we are and uh, likewise have who we are change them and, and to be. Uh, more mutual and uh, co-constitutive that way. Thank you very much. I don't know what happens now. <laughs> okay. Sure. That would be great. Yeah. I just wondered, um, did, did the person with the black dog have any idea about why the dog started growling, as opposed to growling earlier on? Um, I don't know when she noticed Safi starting to growl. But um, as I remember the story, that their relationship was generally, generally harmonious. But I don't know how long they had been together up to that point. Um, I think it was one day she was she got up quickly and this elicited a growl from Safi. Okay. Thank you.
but I don't know much more. Um, there's an excellent article that gets into the stories in detail. Um, it's called Between the Species, uh, Science and Subjectivity, which I'm happy to pass on, which uh, details and theorizes those experiences with her dogs. So I could pass that on. Yeah. I really appreciate what you brought to us today in terms of um, all your work and your research. Thanks. Um, opening up this world um, of animal life and animal feelings and I, I feel like in my own life um, you speak a little louder Jeff. sure, I, I, in my own life my experience has been uh, often that there's been a duality that's really deeply entrenched uh, particularly in western culture around the division between humans and animals mm -hmm on many levels, and most tragically, I think, on a spiritual level. And many people who follow a spiritual practice, for some reason or other, um, maintain that duality. And I think having you here today is um, exemplary of how false that duality is, and uh, that the spirituality runs throughout all living beings. Uh, all sentient beings, and the suffering occurs on all levels, as does so much else of life that, we, as we know it, and we don't know it about them sometimes. And just to understand that it's all one mm. is, for me, really important. And I'm glad you brought this here today, that we have that opening, that we have that connection to animal life as well. Thanks. Thank you. Yep. My question is going to come from a slightly different place. Um, my recollection is that people have known actually for quite a long time the practices you've described in existence. And there's a very ritualistic company out there, although that's my number. But Can you say that last part again? Something. Sorry, it's sort of a ritualist if you don't have terrible things, you don't touch, 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 shouldn't have it, and let's go have a hamburger. Oh, okay. So, what I'm trying to, what I'd like to ask you as a researcher about, about animals is what is your research led you to conclude about people? In other words, people hear about suffering everywhere. Yeah. Not that I mean, let's forget animals for a moment. The contents of the world are in, enveloped in suffering, and we're indifferent to it. What's missing in people? based on your research or insight coming from what you've studied by? Um, I would say nothing. Uh, I, I, I struggle. I think I see what you're saying, though. I struggle with a notion of willed ignorance, so the idea that we know what we don't want to know. Um, some anthropologists have theorized the notion of um, the open secret, that societies are actually built around certain open secrets that we know not to know. Um, as a kind of complicity in that uh, that's really hard to grapple with because this kind of uh, animal rights maxim that if slaughterhouses had glass walls we'd all be vegetarian I think is, is actually not true um, that I think you're right that some people do really know we do know um, but it's those practices are supported by a whole sort of larger cultural context um, which is about sort of cutting oneself off from uh, various different others um, and I think it just perpetuates itself that way, and I think that we're actually encouraged to be separate. Um, so I think that, and Mike, you've pointed to this in one of your pieces of writing that I was looking at recently, that um, part of it is about uh, whether or not um, people can let it touch them or move them in some ways, um, to have that moment of connection uh, enough that you feel it. I think Sharon Nunez was getting at that as well. We've won the debates. We can look at these conditions and say they're horrible. Um, we know that animals aren't just unfeeling machines, but unless you actually let that touch you um, and get inside your heart, it's not going to motivate you to change. And that's why I think potentials for farm sanctuaries, going and meeting these animals, um, different things meet people at different places in their lives, but it just has to be something that gets inside you. Um, just like Mike was talking about at the beginning, that there was just a moment that um, broke him open. And so what I try to do in my teaching is um, to figure out ways of meeting people where they are to figure out what might break them open a little bit more. Um, 
And often that has to do with their own pain and identity and things like that. So it's sort of a dual process of um, looking at yourself and then opening to others at that same moment. Um, but, I, you know, I go back to capitalism. My quick and dirty answer is always capitalism. You know, well, it's economics. Is a lot of, what's wrong with people is that we're hooked into a machine that um, doesn't value life. Um, and so, I mean... I don't, I don't know. It's a, it's a huge question. That's sort of some initial responses. Yeah. I'm just wondering, uh, having lived in farm country and I know a lot of farmers, have you had much conversation with the people that farm? Yeah, I mean, most of my conversations have been with workers who are working in slaughterhouses. Um, I have a lot of experience talking with people who run farm sanctuaries. Um, so people who are farming, but they're not killing the animals. So I don't know if that counts. I don't know what the technical term would be for farming. Um, and then also talking with some small-scale farmers as well uh, that have a different kind of relationship with their animals, um, but are ultimately seeing those animals st still in a position of um, being in servitude to human beings. Um, but most, of, like I said, most of my interactions have been with um, slaughterhouse workers interviewing people who have worked uh, in either factory farms or in slaughterhouses, and then sanctuary workers. Yeah. One of the reasons I ask is most of the farmers I know actually do feel very badly about it. Yeah. <laughs> but they say, this is the way it's got to be. This is my livelihood, and this is the way it has to be. Kind of based on a traditional understanding or? No, based on if, if I don't farm this way, I don't eat. Yeah. And it, it's a really, I think, difficult and interesting place yeah. to be from the human side. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there was, there was a really moving story um, that just came out. Uh, forgetting exactly where, somewhere in China that came out about a week and a half ago about a moment that a farmer had with a pig who he just caught her eyes uh, and he stopped farming in that moment um, and actually started a sanctuary. So it's interesting to, to see even people who are, can be very dedicated to a particular kind of engagement can also uh, change or be touched in different ways at different times. So, Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, thank you. Um, it makes me think about the, the trainer, the, the dog trainer that, that spoke to the person behind the black dog. Right. Yeah. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder, well, what, I guess what training they go, they go through is to kind of give that, I suppose, I don't want to say unsolicited advice, but for the advice that's maybe well-intended but has obviously gone down in the way. And, and it makes me wonder if, if lovely people like yourselves have spoken to animal trainers, trainers in general because they're obviously educating the wider public and population about how to react and be and, and the kind of emotion that you give up to, to animals and, and that kind of thing. I think surely like those kind of places would be where, where respect and the spirituality kind of see in people's minds would be like like with people who are working with directly with animals in those ways. Oh, so you're kind of you're concerned about that this person's like perpetuating this kind of narrative in the world about who animals are that could backfire in this way. Not not that specifically, but just whether or not you've spoken to to animal trainers at all, um, because someone who's giving advice like that that was uh, uh, misdirected. I can imagine it just happening a thousand times over. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that this particular kind of um, narrative, uh, dropping the storyline, right, I always think about dropping the storyline in regards to that. Um, experience that Smuts went through because she had to drop the storyline and be with her specific dog. But I think that actually what happened in that situation speaks to a larger problem where we tend to, not only the trainers in some circumstances, although I think this is changing, is that we tend to react to um, animals uh, as just species, like species representative. You'll hear this in people's discourse, the bear. The bear is this kind of animal. 
the raccoon, right? It's, it's built into our way of speaking about animals and that one of the interventions that people like Smuts is making and I think that some trainers are increasingly doing is saying we need to really think about that particular animal, that particular specific relationship, that those particular experiences, um, their subjectivity, uh, their agency, the way they're trying to communicate with us in a very kind of localized way. Uh, and that let that inform our relationships with them. And I think that's part of a powerful thing that I hope is increasingly happening. And actually see, I see some tide turning a little bit in terms of dog training in that area, but I haven't spoken a lot to trainers themselves, so I can't, I can't speak specifically about that. But just the reading that I've done or just media that I've looked at, you see a little bit more willingness, um, to interact with animals as individuals, uh, and not to ascribe a kind of narrative that we're going to pose over every dog who's supposed to act like a dog in this scenario. Um, and I think that that's really wise. That's part of the profound insight that I think Smuts, uh, brings. Unfortunately, you know, the first images that I showed, um, one of the things that's so sad for me is that I can talk about all this stuff about relationality, specificity, individuality, but um, most of the animals that people are consuming on a daily basis and really only interacting with in terms of animal products or their bodies, there's no potential for relationship. Uh, and actually, that whole relationality is intentionally hidden from us, uh, and we are not allowed to get to the no to the pig that we might eat, right? Um, and maybe we wouldn't if we got to know them. Uh, uh, and so what does this kind of opening up and this willingness to be in relation and recognition of specificity and individuality and subjectivity, what does that mean for animals that we're eating that the whole point is to treat them just like a machine and commodify them entirely uh, and to not have an opportunity for interaction? Um, I don't know how to bring those two worlds together, you know, with my students. I don't know how to, we, like, do I take you to a farm sanctuary? How do I get... That individual, I met a pig this weekend, and it absolutely, every time I meet a pig, I'm like, thank you. I needed to come back to this place because I spend too much, I can spend too much time in the gestation crate kind of world thinking about that. And then you see this pig who's fighting with another pig over an apple, and they're rolling in the mud, and they're loving the shade, and you're like, you're eating the strawberries. You know, they're eating the strawberries. Um, so, I don't know. These are questions. I feel like I'm probably better asking questions than answering. <laughs> Last question. Okay. Um, I, I find the conversation around around um, like new relationships with animals really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, as a culture, a very troubled relationship with animals, especially with animals. Um, I also I can't help feeling a bit of a critique about, especially in the context of um, in a spiritual environment where there's a lot of idealism around food choices and an alignment of uh, purity and spirituality with not being involved in staying separate from the animal world. And so I'm interested also to, to hear what you think about. I mean, there are so many cultures that are very interwoven with um, consuming the animal world in a traditional way and with very rich relationships with the animal and mythology I grew up in a community where my, my parents hunted and fished, and they had such a reverence for the natural world. And for me, they were spiritual teachers in a way. Yeah. And uh, so I'm just curious what if you could comment. Sure. Yeah, it's something I really struggled with. I think it's a I think it's an incredibly important question. Um, I guess I would say sort of two major things about it. One is that. Um, I think that I think that it's been interesting that in my own journeys with this work, especially my masters, there's a lot of First Nations people um, that I got to meet, and they were always really on side with my work. <laughs> like they would look at the stuff that I'm talking about in terms of factory farming and be like, "We don't do that. This is totally anti what we're all about." Um, and it was actually kind of an interesting point of alliance because the animal rights folks and the First Nations folks are often uh, pitted against each other. Um, so I think in some ways we're all kind of, we're working towards a similar uh, kind of deeper respect, compassion. And I'm not really interested in weighing into or passing judgment on um, uh, an indigenous community that's living in terms of subsistence um, hunting uh, 
and having a particular kind of relationship with animals that you know is being passed down through um, thousands of years and, and to judge that. I don't think that's what I'm talking about. Um, and I actually think that those traditions can be um, uh, something that we look to for a lot of insight. And that's something that I teach in my classes as well. Um, so there's sort of that piece that I think is important to hold. Um, they, those relationships don't, to be one, don't tend to be one of commodification, objectification, um, and treating others like property. So I see myself as, um, and the people that I read as being aligned with those sorts of worldviews. At the same time, the other sort of major intervention that I'd like to make is that there's also First Nations people that are talking about very similar things. So Margaret Robinson, who's a teacher um, here in Toronto, is Mi'kmaq, and she talks about vegan ethics as being um, uh, resonant with her Mi'kmaq traditions. And she's done a lot of work on um, thinking through the animal question in terms of uh, her spiritual traditions and saying, actually, animal liberation resonates with a lot of the stories within her Mi'kmaq culture. So there are people like Rod Coronado, for example, who identifies as an indigenous traditionalist. And that is actually the motivation that he uses then, or he did use, to break into fur farms. Because he said, these animals are my relations. Fur farming is an extension of colonialism. Um, I'm an animal liberationist because of my indigenous worldview. So I just want to kind of disrupt the dichotomy, too, between what I'm presenting here in First Nations people and traditional knowledge that I think in some ways it can get taken up, these views, as a way of kind of um, eliding or dismissing traditional hunting, for example. Um, and I think that that's a real problem. At the same time, I think the dichotomy between animal activists and First Nations isn't as clear, and that sometimes ind indigeneity and traditional values become a motivator for certain kinds of animal liberation. And I think the question of culture is really important, because if we open ourselves to thinking about animal cultures, so when we talk about the macaw whale hunt, for example, which is an incredibly difficult political, ethical problem, so often it gets framed in terms of culture, and we're talking about the culture of the Macaw people, what does it also mean to include in that conversation, not to say that they shouldn't hunt, but to also appreciate that the whales have a culture too that is being compromised by the hunt, right? And so how do we kind of hold all this difficult stuff together? Um, for me, it's a really difficult, hard, but important place to kind of sit in. Um, uh, so that's my kind of very messy response. Um, maybe Lauren will stay sure. for a little while for people that would like to extend the conversation. Some people who are here doing a 12-day intensive have been here since 7 o'clock this morning. Some folks need to get to that. Um, thank you. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't forget that everything we do here is by donation. We suggest a $20 donation, and there's a box at the back of the room. And if you want to be on our email list, you can also write your email down.